This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org. This is Dave Iverson. The quest to find new disease treatments has long included an intriguing possibility known as drug repurposing. That is, taking a drug that's already been approved to treat one condition and seeing if it might also be effective in treating another. Perhaps the most famous example of drug repurposing is Viagra, which was originally approved to treat hypertension. One significant advantage of this approach is that it could put new treatments on the market faster, since the drug being repurposed has already gone through the drug approval process. In Parkinson's, two drugs used to treat other conditions have sparked particular interests for their potential to treat PD. One is inosine, a drug designed to boost levels of the antioxidant urate, or uric acid. The premise that inosine could be beneficial in treating Parkinson's comes from epidemiological studies, which indicated that people with high uric acid levels had a lower risk of developing Parkinson's. The other drug of interest is isratapine, a drug designed to treat high blood pressure. Similar to the inosine story, epidemiological studies showed that people taking isratapine also seemed to have a lower incidence of Parkinson's. But epidemiology only takes us so far. So the Michael J. Fox Foundation and the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke supported large clinical trials to test these approaches. Results in phase two for both inosine and isratapine were promising. But in December, researchers halted a phase three trial of inosine, the uric acid booster, because the early data indicated it was not going to be successful. And this month, isratapine, the blood pressure drug, met the same fate. Recently, I spoke with Dr. Todd Scherer, CEO of the Michael J. Fox Foundation, and Dr. Walter Koroshetz, director of the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke, which is part of the National Institutes of Health, about both the disappointments and the lessons learned from these two experiences. I began by asking Todd Scherer to describe the clinical trial results with the uric acid-boosting drug, inosine. So there was very um, compelling evidence and rationale for testing inosine as a potential treatment for Parkinson's, um, really based on some biomarker studies from people with Parkinson's disease. And what was most interesting was that there was some evidence that suggested that individuals at the time of their diagnosis who had um, Parkinson's disease, who had higher levels of urate, um, seemed to have a slower progression of the disease compared to those who had a lower level of urate. So the hypothesis was really focused on if we could identify those with Parkinson's who had the lower levels of urate, if we could uh, give them um, inosine, we could elevate their urate levels to the level of individuals who were showing the slower rates of progression of the clinical symptoms of the disease. So the study was really designed to test that hypothesis. And unfortunately, what was uh, found is while the the study did succeed in using inosine to elevate the levels of urate, and this was done very carefully because there are some potential side effects of having higher levels of urate. Um, So while the, the trial was able to successfully elevate the levels of urate, we did not really detect a significant change in the symptoms of the disease in those individuals. We did not get the outcome that we were hoping for, but we will um, be digging in and analyzing this data much more in much more detail to make sure we maximize the learnings 
that we have from this trial. And we'll talk more about what those, some of those learnings are with both inosine and isratapine in a moment. But Walter Korshutz on isratapine, in some ways, a similar story. Large study, over 300 participants, multiple sites, carefully designed, placebo controls, all of it. This was a, tr a trial designed to assess whether a blood pressure drug um, might make a difference in Parkinson's. Again, epidemiological evidence suggesting that those who used this drug had, had uh, a lesser incidence of, of Parkinson's. And was also intriguing because this drug is a calcium channel blocker. And as I understand it, uh, the calcium channel may also play a role in the breakdown of dopamine. So there was a lot of intrigue about this one uh, as well. Walk us through, if you would, then what was found. So similar to the uh, urate story, there was epidemiologic evidence um, that suggested this uh, drug as a potential uh, treatment for Parkinson's disease. And that comes from kind of big studies looking at people who take calcium channel blockers for their blood pressure uh, or their heart disease. And some studies showed a 30% risk reduction in a new diagnosis of Parkinson's in people who were treated with uh, these calcium channel blockers. And on the biological side, um, the uh, story is that uh, the dopamine neurons have this unusual feature in that they have this kind of spiking, uh, repetitive spiking pattern in which... Uh, during a spike of firing, uh, there is a large influx of calcium that comes into the cells. And um, calcium is a modulator of a number of intracellular processes, some of which have been associated with uh, uh, injury to the cell. So the idea was that the calcium channel blockers uh, may have been working in this epidemiological data by blocking the flow of calcium into these spiking uh, dopamine neurons and then protecting them from uh, from uh, dying in folks who have Parkinson's disease. And now the, the difference with the urate study is that uh, in the urate study, at least you could measure the um, the effect of the inosine on circulating urate levels. With respect to the calcium channel, there was nothing we could really measure that indicated whether it was changing the firing of the dopamine neuron. So uh, the dose was chosen, a 10 milligram dose, uh, because it was thought to be in the range from the animal studies that, that could be therapeutic, and also because there's a limit to how much resratapine someone could take without dropping their blood pressure too low. And in many people with Parkinson's, that's a concern. So the dose and the uh, was chosen because of the maximum tolerability in Parkinson's. And again, as was mentioned, the trial had a very similar design and, um, and um, again, similar outcomes. Uh, uh, and they did not see a significant effect. It didn't give us the result that we had been hoped for. Um, but again, I would emphasize that the data that comes from this trial and the other trial is incredibly important. So the patients uh, who contributed their data and participate in these trials, we, we really want to thank them profusely for doing this. And I think it will really help us in terms of design of future trials and clearly um, help us in kind of rethinking our strategy 
for developing a more effective treatment to decrease the chances of developing or slowing down the progression of Parkinson's disease. Well, let's talk more then about some of the lessons learned from this, what we can take away from it. Because, of course, there's enormous disappointment within the patient community and within the scientific community as well, because both of these seemed like such promising uh, possibilities, as you've both described. But as you've also both suggested, there's a lot that can still be gleaned from this that will be helpful going forward. One thing I wanted to just begin by by asking along these lines, um, Tashir, is um, while it feels disappointing that this didn't work, on the other hand, sometimes it's also important to know what doesn't work because then you can let that one go and move on to something else. It reminds me of something that the noted neurologist Bill Langston um, said to me once a number of years ago when I was interviewing him, and he said something like, you know, science is the process of going down alleys to see if they're blind. And I think there's a, maybe a lot of truth to that. And so in some ways, you have to go down those alleys. Um, I, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that, Todd, and, and why it actually is important to know what doesn't work. Well, I think a, a couple of points to think about in terms of uh, how to digest this information. I think one is... Um, to just remember that clinical trials are still part of the experimental process and that um, we want to test hypotheses in these trials. So it's still very important to take those major steps forward to test these uh, hypothesis, hypotheses to really understand whether we're on the right track and what might be impacting the disease. And you know, all experiments um, have the chance of, of being successful or, or unsuccessful. Um, I think what's important is that the design of the experiments should be done in a way that we can really interpret whether we've tested these hypotheses and truly tested whether we've, uh, to use your analogy, walked down those roads. Um, and I think what's very uh, good about these particular trials was how well they were designed and the um, rigor in which they were conducted. So that particularly for the uh, inosine trial, where we really were, had the marker, the biological marker, to know that the drug was doing what we hoped it would be doing in, in the individuals who were treated, we have a lot of information now about understanding whether we tested the hypothesis and, uh, to your point, whether it was correct or incorrect. Um, and I think that's something that is one of the major lessons that's been learned in neuroscience um, over the last number of years is to make sure that when we do gather the resources to do these important clinical trials, that they are designed in a way that we can really interpret the outcomes to know whether we should move on to a different hypothesis and different therapeutic, um, or whether it's worthy to follow up on what we've learned. So I think um, that's a really important um, aspect to, to make sure you really dig into this, the data of these trials to learn all you can to make sure that the next steps and the next approaches will be that much more informed. Does that also mean then, Walter Korshetz, that while these two trials didn't work, there's still maybe clues there? In other words, we know something is maybe going on with boosting urate levels and, and Parkinson's, or similarly that, 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 um, that the role of the calcium channels may be an important one to continue. Do, does this suggest that 
those avenues may may still, even though these trials didn't work, are still important clues for us to understand the, the sort of the, the biologic nature of the disease? Well, I think uh, I think that's, you know, the the really key point to, to what's been happening in the area of Parkinson's uh, clinical trials, and that is you know, trying to get at the biology of the disease. So as you mentioned, uh, in these trials, we were basing it on evidence pretty much that came from epidemiological studies. So people who were taking calcium channel blockers perhaps for 10 or 20 years before they could have, they were going to be diagnosed with Parkinson's or people who have high uric acid their whole life, uh, which may have affected their chance of Parkinson's. But going, I think that in, in this and in other, other areas of neurodegenerative disease, uh, the epidemiology data has not really been uh, a, a harbinger of success going into trials. But the bigger issue is trying to get at the biology of the disease and developing your drug so that you're hitting the target you want. But I think also um, it pushes us to be more clever as we go into our new uh, you know, generation of clinical trials. And I would argue in and Michael J. Fox and NINDS have made big investments in what we call biomarker development and validation. And the idea there is that we do the work ahead of time to, uh, to uh, bring things that can be measured that are very close to the disease um, pathophysiology, and those become the targets of the therapies. And, and we don't go on into testing it against, say, the UPRDRS until we know that we have the dose right, the duration right, uh, the timing of the disease onset correct. Um, uh, and, and, and there, I think that will really increase our chance of success. So, um, so I think that's the tack we have to take. This is, these, are unfortunately, are not the only two failed trials in Parkinson's, and uh, there have been multiple others that follow the same type of pattern, and, uh, and I think, um, uh, you know, you can run down a blind alley a couple of times, but eventually I think you have to find another road, and I think that's, that's where we are now is trying to develop biomarkers to open up a highway of therapies um, that would be more increased chance of success as they go into patients. And, and when we begin to wrap up our conversation, I want to hear more about what some of those promising highways might be. But I want to wrap up a couple of more things about um, these the, the question of the possibility of these repurposed drugs, because there has been a lot of hope about that, not only with this ratapine and, and inosine, but previously with a diabetes a drug, before that, the dietary supplement, coenzyme Q10, none of which have, have proved out. And the, of course, the great attraction of these is that because they're already available, already FDA approved, you can sort of jump the line a little bit and get something to people that much faster. But I'm wondering, Todd, if this isn't the beginnings, at least, or perhaps more than the beginnings, of sort of a cautionary tale about whether or not there is that much promise in these repurposed opportunities. I'm thinking now particularly about nilotinib, which has gotten so much attention, a leukemia drug that has shown some promise in early trials. 
Do you think we should be that we should be that the that this is kind of a cautionary tale at this point as we look at this possibility of repurposed drugs? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a an important takeaway in terms of sort of lessons learned and um, going into these studies and approaches with your eyes wide open. The great advantages of the repurposed drugs is that the drug has passed a lot of the hurdles where um, many potential drugs can fail and not make it to the clinic. And that has to do with safety and what we call bioavailability, meaning that if you take the drug, it actually does something, gets to a place in the body and does something biologically. But I think the cautionary part of this or the lesson learned is that because by definition these drugs are being repurposed, they weren't necessarily designed with all the characteristics that would be suitable and, and necessary for Parkinson's disease or a neurological disease. So we may get a running head start because we have a good drug in hand, but we still have to overcome the challenges of really understanding the biology of Parkinson's and is this uh, drug designed to really address that biology. And I think that is some of the cautionary tale and that there really aren't any shortcuts here to getting all the way to the end. Um, and we have to, you know, again, go into this with our eyes wide open to know it's still going to be a very um, difficult task and we have to really be very diligent and determined to really um, uncover the best way to do this. Well, let me ask you both then um, about where where we go from here. You're the leaders of two critical organizations in in the uh, in the in the struggle to to find a solution for Parkinson's disease. Walter is the head of the National Institutes of Neurological Disorders and, and Stroke. Todd is the, the leader of the Michael J. Fox Foundation. Your two organizations were critical in the funding of both the Isratapine and the Inosine trial. Fox Foundation stepped up uh, early and, and NINDS after that, um, because in part there isn't a lot of pharma, pharmaceutical industry interest in, in the repurposed drugs because they can't make as much money. There's not as much return on investment. It's, all the drug, it's a drug that's already out there. So how do you harbor your resources perhaps differently now or, or in a more shrewd way that will get us um, to the goal that you've both described? Walter Korshetz, how are you thinking about that now? Well, in INDS, we, uh, we, have, we have multiple different um, you know, pathways to take and um, similar to Michael J. Fox. But, um, and I would just throw out that the troubles that we've had in Parkinson's have been repeated in many neurodegenerative diseases, pretty much all the neurodegenerative diseases. So we're not alone in this uh, challenge and trouble with uh, failed trials, trials that failed to show the results we wanted. Um, so we invest heavily in trying to come up with you know, new targets and, and basically interventions that have bigger effect sizes. So, um, I think that's also a critical thing that um, that if you have something like in stroke, for instance, where you remove a clot out of a brain artery uh, within a couple of hours, you'll see unbelievably dramatic effects. So I think you always have to search for more uh, powerful targets. Um, but um, I think we also have to invest heavily in what I call the biomarker space. And I think, you know, we, we all would like an answer tomorrow, um, but 
I think that the shortcuts have not really led us outside of these blind alleys. So I think we have to to really invest in developing a marker in in Parkinson's disease that if we change that marker, we think that we're really affecting the disease uh, progression. So for, in, so for instance, Snooklian is certainly the one that Michael J. Fox and NINDS have been concentrating on. Mostly, can we measure this, say, in the spinal fluid, and, and then that becomes a target of a drug lowers the spinal fluid levels of the abnormal synuclein, then, then you really got something interesting. And this is, say, for instance, what's happening in Huntington's disease now, where you can measure the abnormal protein in Huntington's disease. It's called Huntington. And uh, the, right now, the data coming out of clinical trials is that the, the gene therapy is really lowering, dramatically lowering, the amount of that protein in the spinal fluid. So mm-hmm. that's one example. And in, in Alzheimer's disease, it was amyloid and tau imaging. And those are the targets now. Uh, to try to to make progress in those diseases, um, so I think we need something equivalent uh, that we can uh, really trust as a marker of the pathology in Parkinson's that we can measure in patients. And and Todd Sherry is along with that pursuit of of finding the right biomarker or multiple biomarkers, including the ability to to scan or image alpha synuclein in the brain. It's part of also what you're going to do represented by this uh, project called AMP-PD, the Accelerating Medicines Partnership for for Parkinson's disease, where both the foundation and NINDS are kind of joining forces in some ways to sort of sift through all the data that both organizations have already collected through their biomarker studies and really sort of finally dice that to figure out what what clues are there both about the disease and then about who can be put into which trials so that we're testing the right drugs on the right people? Is that is that part of what that effort is designed to accomplish? There is a lot of excitement around a lot of the new targets in Parkinson's disease. Many have come from genetics, things like the LERC2 gene, the GBA gene. Walter just referred to alpha-synuclein. And there's a lot of excitement to develop therapies against a lot of various um, biological targets that we think are linked to the cause and progression of Parkinson's. All of these therapeutic strategies will run into the same sort of common challenge about how are we going to do the trials to optimize the chances of success. And that will involve selecting the right patients or uh, participants in those studies at the right stage of their disease, but also having the right way to measure the disease in those individuals, not only biologically, but also clinically. And in order to really uncover that information will require large, very significantly costly studies to understand what normally happens in Parkinson's, what's the normal process prior to diagnosis, what is the process at diagnosis, and then as the disease progresses in its early stage and longer stage. And as we all know, there's great variability in Parkinson's. So you have to study a large number of individuals at those various stages, both clinically with neuroimaging tools, and a lot of uh, take advantage of a lot of new technology to really do 
high content molecular profiling of individuals genetically and uh, understanding what's happening in various systems in their body at those stages. And that's not the kind of study that's, you know, project that can be done by one investigator or even one funding agency. And I think this is really one of the goals of the AMP-PD study, which is to bring together not only the Fox Foundation and NINDS, but also some of the pharmaceutical companies to leverage work that was done through a very significant program over the last number of years at NIH to um, understand Parkinson's disease in a large number of individuals at different stages of the disease, their clinical symptoms, what ha what's happening biologically, and also the study that the Fox Foundation's been supporting, the Parkinson's Progression Marker Initiative, which, had, which has very similar goals. And I think this um, collaboration and this, this type of research is really important because this is a common ground of information that all people could use then to develop their therapeutics. But we have to work together and collaborate. And, and one thing that's really exciting is that all the data being shared across um, these studies so that researchers could really uncover new insights, um, new opportunities for therapeutics, and also to develop biomarkers. And I think that's where um, we're going to see the field going. It's starting to happen now, where in some of the therapeutic trials, people with only certain genetic mutations are being recruited or certain biology, um, so that we can be much more precise in how we translate what we think we know about the disease into making um, real breakthroughs for people. So it's, it sounds in a way then, um, Walter Korshatz, that there, there's a twin challenge. There's a challenge to identify what might slow or stop the progression of Parkinson's disease, hence all the excitement about these genetic trials, alpha-synuclein uh, trials that are designed to modify the progression of the disease, trials that were not in existence only a half a dozen years ago. But at the same time, there's the equally almost equally, perhaps equally important challenge of getting the right people into the right trial, being able to assess and analyze and measure what the results are so we really know whether or not one of those works. So we have to go, going back to that, I guess, earlier analogy, we have to go down two alleys at the same time. Right. Yeah, I think, um, you know, you always start off you know, with the hope that you know, it's going to be an easy, quick win, and uh, but then you have to learn your lessons uh, from prior experience, and oftentimes what that means is, you know, narrowing your focus um, to increases your chance of success, which is is narrowing down on the particular molecular mechanism that you know is related, particularly to genetics, because it's a human you know, uh, finding in the disease. And, and, then, and then that's kind of like your beachhead. So, you know, instead, of, you don't invade, you didn't invade Europe by, you know, parachuting all over Europe. You established, hmm. you know, a beachhead and then, and then you move your forces in. So I think that's, that's the analogy I think of that, you know, right now, if we could get a success in a particular population, we would learn so much, and that would allow us to move out from there to see how well things generalize. 
You know, it reminds me in a way of something that I'd like to ask just a, a closing thought from from each of you on. I, I saw an interview that uh, in which Andy Singleton, a noted geneticist, uh, participated in, and he, he said, Todd, that the he wasn't just optimistic about the, the future of Parkinson's uh, disease research. He was certain about that future. Um, so while we have all these unknowns and all these questions, there does seem to be at the same time this great uh, optimism, and in Andy's case, at least certitude about getting where we want to go, despite all of the obstacles that are still uh, in front of us. Do you share that, Todd? And let me ask you to respond first, and then and then Walter, your last thoughts as well. Yeah, I mean, I remain very optimistic about the direction we're going. I think that one of the important points that. Um, we're, make, we're trying to make, I guess, in this discussion is that we learn so much as we move forward and with each, dis, you know, there might be a disappointing trial, but we learn so much from it on how to do better and our ability now to generate data and the fact that a lot of this data is being made available and that there's great collaboration going on um, across the field. Our knowledge turns are, are happening so much faster than they used to in the past and just new information is coming out all the time. So I remain extremely optimistic, but I, you know, I think we have to be realistic that this is gonna be very hard work and we have to remain dedicated and focused on making sure we are continuing to learn and, and design projects and studies in the way that they could be most informative. And I think we're, we're doing the best that we can on that. And there's good coordination on, on working together to do that in the most productive way. So, you know, and I've been now at the Fox Foundation for 15 years, and this is a very um, promising time in terms of all the new science that has come out, all the new opportunities that are there. So I can see the light at the end of the tunnel, but we have to keep pushing through and make sure that we're doing this in the most intelligent and um, focused way to make sure we get the most out of that um, out of that promise. And Walter Korshetz. Yeah, I know. I agree with Todd um, that, you know, I've been in the area for, you know, 35 years and the, the sophistication that the level of sophistication we have now is astronomically improved over, say, the 1980s when I started. And, um, and and so yes, I feel very optimistic. So I think there's lots of activity going on. Uh, industry is now interested in Parkinson's, which is you know not which is a fairly new development. And I would say you know the NIH is just so grateful for the ability to work so closely with the Michael J. Fox Foundation. And and again, also the the patients who take part in these studies. We say we did this and we did that, but really they did it. And uh, and hats off to them for for helping the science advance. That was Dr. Walter Koroshetz, director of the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke at NIH, and Dr. Todd Scherer, CEO of the Michael J. Fox Foundation. To learn more about the inosine and Isratapine clinical trials and the future of Parkinson's disease research, visit michaeljfox.org. I'm Dave Iverson. This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org.